Genesis 8, 22 through 9, 17. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. Genesis 8, 20 through 9, 17. Genesis 8, 20 through 9, 17. As we read, let's listen with reverence and rejoicing to the word of our God and his promises to us and to all peoples this morning. Genesis 8, 20 through 9, 17. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father, would you anoint and empower the reading and proclamation of your word this morning, the salvation and sanctification of your people and the glory of your name. Help us now because we can do nothing apart from you. Open our ears so that you might speak and your people might listen. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, it was in 1913 that the great 
flood devastated our beloved Dayton. Torrential rains fell from the heavens. The great Miami overflowed into the city streets, all causing the worst natural disaster ever in Ohio history. I remember as a little boy going downtown with my family and seeing on some of the, the street lights downtown the, the designated markers showing how high the floodwaters rose. In some places, the waters rose as high as 20 feet. Now, calling this, this flood great is no exaggeration. In the end, as a result of this flood, more than 360 people passed into eternity. 1,400 horses died and 2,000 pets died. 20,000 homes were destroyed. 65,000 people were displaced. And around $100 million worth of damage was caused. It'd be almost $3 billion today. This flood was truly great. But then after the waters subsided, as you might expect, community and political leaders sprung into action. They, they wanted to try as best they could to ensure that nothing like this, on this scale at least, would ever happen again to our beloved city and region. You know, it might not be commonly known, but major floods were known to happen in this area about once every other decade at the time. There were five major floods in Dayton in the 1800s preceding the great flood of 1913. So this was becoming an ongoing problem. And thus, this organization called the Miami Conservancy District was formed by the likes of people like John Patterson and Governor James Cox. And this group began to, to build a flood control system. This is so nerdy. They began to build this flood control system in 1918. It was completed in 1922. And this system involved five earthen dams modifying the river channel in several locations and several other things. And the result has been a major success. Ever since the completion of that project, it's estimated that the Dayton area has been prevented from flooding around 1,500 times, which is pretty amazing. That by these means, our beloved city has been granted a great deal of stability and ongoing preservation. If you just stop to think about that for a moment, what our life would be like if disaster and destruction came upon our city every other decade. I mean, we've been able to carry on with our lives and our callings, our families, with building this city without these disastrous interruptions every other decade. Our city has enjoyed a great deal of stability as a result of this work and these dams and these modifications. And for that, we should be grateful. This morning, we're looking at the aftermath of the great flood of Genesis. This great catastrophic flood that destroyed all flesh upon the earth. We looked at it last week as Pastor Brian led us through the, the flood and, and the several chapters preceding. But now afterward, as we're coming off this great flood narrative, with that, if we, if we could just put ourselves in the shoes of Noah and his family and in the shoes of this original audience here, we very well might ask the question, well, what on earth is going to ensure that these kind of catastrophic disasters don't happen every other decade, right? I mean, God sent the flood to judge human sin, and the problem of human sin has not changed on this side of the flood. Uh, obviously, the, the, the Lord repeats in verse 21 what he said back in Genesis 6-5, we just read it, that humanity hasn't changed. Right? All the thoughts and intentions of our hearts are still only evil continually. So that's not changed. We also know that God hasn't changed. 
We, we, we know he's the unchangeable one. He's still the holy and righteous judge of the earth. And so if we haven't changed and God hasn't changed, well, should we just expect this kind of catastrophic judgment to take place every so often on the earth? Well, the short answer is no. You might ask why? Well, because of what we just read, because of this covenant that God makes with Noah here in our passage today. We're looking at this covenant that God makes with Noah and with all humanity and with all the creatures of the earth this morning. We're looking at the kind of details of this covenant to show us what we're guaranteed and promised in it, as well as what's required of us in it. And the way that I want to do that is by looking at its parameters, its purpose, and its placard. That is, we're going to look at at some of the promises and obligations of this covenant, its parameters, as well as the reason that it's been given, its purpose, and then its sign, its, its placard, the parameters, purpose, and placard of the Noahic covenant. First, though, we want to see the parameters here. Well, right after Noah gets off the boat, he leads a worship service. He sacrifices to the Lord some of every clean animal and bird on an altar he builds. And we see in verse 21 that the Lord is pleased by this, right? And as a result of the Lord's good pleasure, he begins to move toward Noah and creation with his covenantal promises and commitments. If you'll recall with me our our look at God's covenant with Adam and all humanity in Adam back in Genesis 2, we saw there that a covenant is a binding relational agreement between multiple parties. And usually a covenant will involve certain parameters with promises and commitments. There are usually some stipulations involved and some penalties if any of those commitments are broken. And you see here some of those very characteristics, right? There are parameters, binding commitments made by God to all of humanity here. And additionally, there are some callings that are laid upon Noah and all of us in light of God's commitments here. Now, interestingly, unlike the the covenant that God made with Adam back in Genesis 2, this covenant, it doesn't seem like it can be broken, right? This covenant contains promises and commitments from God that he will keep, it seems, regardless of what humanity, sinful humanity will do with it. But I want us to notice here the commitments that God makes to us in this covenant. If you look at Genesis 8, 20 through 9, 7 as a kind of intro to the covenant, and then Genesis 9, 8 through 17 as the covenant itself, you'll see the commitments being made by God in 8, 20 through 22, and then 9, 8 through 17. And they kind of serve as the the bread of a sandwich, and the middle of it is God's requirements of humanity. Uh, But what do we see the Lord committing to in the, the kind of intro to the covenant and the covenant itself here? Look at Genesis 8, 21 and 22. The Lord says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, he says, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. You see it again there in Genesis 9, 11. The Lord says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. See it again in verse 15. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. So, what's the Lord promising here, right? He's committing himself to this. He's going to refrain from judging the earth in this way and on this scale again. Rather than sending judgment and disaster upon humanity and upon the earth like this again, 
He is rather going to let life and stability continue in the created order. Of course, that that doesn't mean that disasters and catastrophes will never happen again on the earth. But it does mean that disasters and catastrophes of this sort will be relativized and restricted and restrained. It means that when they do take place on the earth, they'll be smaller and more uh, localized, if you will. But the Lord will never again, he says, destroy all flesh on the earth in this kind of judgment again. We could borrow from our opening illustration. God's covenant commitments here are kind of like those earthen dams and modifications made to the river channel in Dayton, which prevents our city from being flooded every other decade, right? Similarly, God's commitments here mean that he's going to restrain his right to judgment on the earth. He's going to dam up his right to judgment, so to speak, and instead let life continue and be preserved on the earth. For how long? Look at 8.22, while the earth remains, right? So there is an expiration, right? The, the final judgment that we read about in Scripture is still coming. Second Peter 3, 1 through 7 tells us about this, when he says that in the final judgment, the earth that was destroyed by water in the days of Noah will likewise be destroyed by fire in the day of Christ Jesus. But until that day, God is going to refrain from judging like this again. He's delaying his judgment until the end of history. He's a God of uh, justice and judgment still. But as theologian and lawyer David Van Drunen puts it, he says the Noahic covenant reveals him to be a God of justice tempered by forbearance. That's his commitment in the Noahic covenant. If you look at the Genesis 9, 1 through 7, you'll see there uh, humanity's commission, right? Uh, God has made his commitments, but now here he commissions and calls humanity to certain things as well. As, as recipients of and partners with God in this covenant, he lets us know here what he'd like to see from us, right? As you look at this, this part of the passage, it will probably sound somewhat familiar to you if you've been with us since the beginning of our time in Genesis, This passage is bookended in verses 1 and 7 with a call to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We heard that back in Genesis 1, 28, didn't we? Where we were given what we've been calling the the cultural mandate, where we were created to be God's representatives on the earth, and where we were called by Him to fill the earth with more people and to further cultivate the earth for His glory. And in Genesis 1, He had just created and formed and filled the earth with life and beauty and abundance. And then he placed us on earth to imitate him in those things with our own forming and filling kind of work, right? And we do that in our vocations as we make things and organize things and maintain things. We do that in our homes as we raise children and plant gardens and make food and do home maintenance. And all of that work was given to us by God in the beginning, and it's reiterated here. Another calling is also an echo of Genesis 1 here as well, where we see in verses 2 and 4 that the fear and dread of humanity shall be upon all the animal life of the earth, right? And of course, that's, again, kind of echoing uh, the the dominion that was given to humanity over animal life in Genesis 1, 28. Only there's some further application of that dominion here. It goes on to say this, "...into your hand they are delivered." Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. 
but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, its blood. Now, there were obviously given this freedom to eat animals. Praise God. It's hard to say if it was permissible before this and just not clearly stated, or if this is where it first became permissible to do so. But either way, we're permitted here to eat animals. However, there's a stipulation put in place, isn't there? Uh, there's, there's a stipulation put on our consumption, and it might sound rather peculiar. It's that we're not to eat meat with its blood still in it, okay? Now, I don't think that's a, a prohibition against eating a medium-rare steak, okay? It seems rather to be a prohibition against reckless abuse in our killing and consumption of animals, right? We're allowed to eat animals and meat. However, we're not permitted to, to pounce on them and eat them alive like other animals do. Uh, David Van Drunen, again, I, I think he hits the nail on the head with this when he says that the requirement here is that humans should act like humans. They are to treat animals humanely, okay? We should be humane, in our exercise of dominion over animals and in our, in our consumption of animals, right? And, and if you just look at the overall context of the covenant being made here, that makes a lot of sense, right? This is a context that shows that God cares about animal life. He includes them in his covenant here, right? Did you notice that? Did you notice it's animals are included as recipients of the promises of this covenant. And so as human beings who have been put in charge of animals here on earth, we should show them the respect and dignity that that deserves. We shouldn't overvalue them, right? Animals are not humans. They're not image bearers like we are. Your, your pets are not people. They're not fur babies. I hate to break it to some of you, right? Animals don't hold the same value we do as human beings, and yet they are still beings created by God and in covenant relationship with God, and therefore we should show them respect, right? Some of you have pets. You should treat your pets in a humane way, right? The, 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 there are laws in the Mosaic Code. There are, there's wisdom passed down to us in Proverbs about treating pets in a humane way. Why? It's because their lives are valuable. God cares about them. Uh, as best we're able, we should consume meat in a humane way. Right? We, we don't always have control over everything in that regard, but we should do what we can. Some of you have chickens. I think just a couple of you. Take good care of your chickens, right? The, your pets, chickens, animals that we consume, they are beings created by and in covenant with God, and so we're to treat animals humanely. But now look at the last calling on humanity here. God calls us to seek to reduce and restrain acts of murder in human society. We see this there in verses 5 and 6 as God speaks to us, saying, For your lifeblood, I will require reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Now, this is related to this very controversial issue of capital punishment, the death penalty. 
let's just say from the get-go, it's a complicated issue that not all Christians agree on and that, you know, Christians on all sides of this debate have reasons for whatever their position is. And so we're not going to be able to answer every single question and qualm related to this and still stay focused on our text as a whole today. So as a caveat, if you have any questions or curiosities you'd like to explore, I'd love to explore those things with you after service or some other time, but we're not going to spend the rest of our time addressing this uh, during our time together this morning, focusing solely on this, and yet we still need to spend some time focusing on it, right? Now, the Lord is here instituting capital punishment for this capital crime we know as murder, right? He begins by saying here that if an animal kills a human, then that animal should be put to death. Still do that today, tend to still do that today, it makes sense. But then the Lord requires the same of humans as well. And the purpose of that is to reduce and restrain acts of killing and murder in human society. Okay, And it does this in several ways. On the one hand, it does this by restraining personal acts of vengeance, right? We saw this with Lamech back in Genesis 4 when he boasted of, of avenging himself uh, 77-fold. Remember that? He said that a young man wounded him, and so he killed that young man, right? Well, this is here a call to limit and restrain that kind of outsized personal vengeance. And instead, it's meant to make sure that there is proportionate justice carried out in human society. So if someone wounds you, you don't kill them. Someone kills a family member. You don't, you don't go wipe out this whole family, kill this whole family or this whole tribe or clan and, and wipe them off the face of the earth. That kind of violence is what marked the pre-flood society. And that's in part why they were judged. But now the Lord is seeking to limit and restrain that kind of outsized and disproportionate vengeance by requiring proportionality in response to murder among humans. But then on the other hand, it's also seeking to restrain acts of murder by still providing some measure of, of vengeance or justice being done, right? Someone commits an act of murder, he says they're to be put to death as a result, and you can easily see how that very well would serve to restrain acts of murder in human society, right? It won't prevent it completely, but it will restrain it. I mean, think about it, if it will likely serve as a deterrent to those who might otherwise commit murder. Those, you know, if someone's filled with murderous rage or if they're planning to, to kill someone, they might be restrained from doing so out of fear of meeting with this terrible penalty, right? They don't want to be put to death themselves, and so they might very well just refrain from committing the crime in the first place. Might also ensure that those who have committed murder won't have opportunity to do it again, right? It will limit acts of killing and murder by removing from society those who are prone and likely to do it. You see, the, the call of these verses is to restrain and limit murder and killing in human society. And then furthermore, it gives the reason for wanting to restrain murder and killing in verse 6 there. Here it is, if you look at it. The end of verse 6 there asserts the value and dignity of human life. It shows us that people are uniquely important in creation because people are made in the image and likeness of God. And notice, 
There's no distinction made here. Individual human beings bear God's image and are thus important. And that's true whether they're rich or poor, black or white, young or old, able-bodied or disabled, male or female. There's no distinction made here at all. All are made in the image and likeness of God and thus are worthy of life and protection and dignity. Thus, God wants us to reduce and restrain murder in human society by these means. And we need to be clear here that this is not God giving permission for personal vengeance, okay? He's not saying that if someone kills a loved one of yours, just take it into your own hands and go take care of it, right? Go off and, and kill them in personal vengeance. No, that, that kind of act is directly forbidden by Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? And yet as we continue to read the Bible on into the Mosaic Code and into the New Testament, we see that it's not individuals that God gives this call to. He gives this call to civil government that human societies come together to form, right? So if you read on into the Mosaic Code, the civil government in Israel is given instructions on how to try and convict murderers or clear the innocent. And they are there authorized to carry out capital punishment on those found guilty. Uh, the same permission is seen in Romans 13 for all legitimate civil governments, not just the civil government of Old Testament Israel. In Romans 13, verses 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul tells us that governing authorities are God's servants, right? And he says that they're God's servants for our good, to restrain evil and protect life in human society. And he says about them that if you do wrong, you should be afraid, because he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So what's he saying there? He's saying that governing authorities have been authorized by God himself to carry out punishment on those who commit heinous sins and crimes in human society. Now, I think the Apostle Paul is referring to there what God called humanity to do in the Noahic Covenant, and requiring a reckoning for human life. He's saying there that human civil government has been put in place to carry out the exact thing God called us to in Genesis 9, namely retributive justice for capital crime. That's something civil government is called to carry out here, not individual people. Now, I know there's a lot of complications involved in all of this. I understand that. I, I understand that our criminal justice system today in our society is not perfect. And in many ways, it's, it's broken. I understand that our criminal justice system and, 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 and specifically our practices of capital punishment have targeted a vastly disproportionate amount of black Americans. And I also understand that Christians from the early church until today have not been in complete agreement on how to apply texts like Genesis 9 and Romans 13. And I very much doubt that we're going to solve all of those issues today and this morning. But here's what we should say as a result of what we see here in Genesis 9 and Romans 13. This is a, just a baseline uh, Christian calling when it comes to the teaching of Genesis 9 and Romans 13. Here's what we're called to see and understand and submit to from this is that civil government has been granted the right to use force and violence 
in order to restrain evil in human societies. Civil government has been granted the right to use force and violence in order to restrain evil in human society. And as Christians, we ought to respect that. Now, in our particular society, we do this by means of police, uh, our court system with all of its jails and prisons and judicial processes and authorities. We should probably include the military in this. Those kinds of entities exist in our society to, to, to use force in the protection and preservation of human life and to restrain evil in our society. And while we don't need to give blanket approval to everything those entities do, right? They're not perfect. We, we don't need to give blanket approval. They're, they're not always just and correct in their calling. They need to be held accountable when they're not carrying out just their just calling. But even still, we need to respect those sorts of entities, and we need to respect the individuals who serve in them as servants of God who don't bear the sword in vain. God has called that human, he has willed that human beings come together in societies to form civil governments like this who bear the sword ever since the beginning of the Noahic covenant here in Genesis 9 and all so that human evil is restrained and human life is protected in human society. That's what we're called to in the Noahic covenant. And God has promised to refrain from judgment here. And he has called us then to carry out the cultural mandate, to be fruitful and multiply, to treat animals humanely, and to restrain evil and violence in human society. Those are the parameters of the Noahic covenant. Those are God's commitments as well as our commission. Now moving on next, what's, what's the purpose of all that? Why has God made this commitment and given us these callings in his word? Why has he made this particular covenant with Noah and humanity and animals and all the earth? What's the purpose of the Noahic covenant? Well, we see clearly in the promises of the covenant here what the Lord is promising to not do, right? He's not going to destroy the earth like this again. But in verse 22 of chapter 8, we see it put a little more positively. What, what, what the Lord's intention is here. He says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. In other words, what he's promising to do here is to not interrupt the ordinary life and cycles and rhythms of the created order. Instead, he's going to preserve it and let it carry on and give it an ongoing stability. In fact, it's not uncommon for you to hear theologians and biblical scholars call the Noahic covenant here a covenant of preservation or a covenant of stability. It's a covenant in which the Lord promises to preserve the created order and to give it an ongoing stability. And of course, that just begs the question, stability for what? Why is the Lord giving the created order ongoing stability and preservation? Well, as you read the whole of Genesis and the whole of the Bible, really, you can easily see that the Lord has plans and purposes and promises that he wants to bring to pass in the created order, right? The Lord has created everything for his purposes, and he intends to bring those purposes to fruition and fulfillment. And it just stands to reason, then, that those things will never happen in the earth if the earth continues to get annihilated every so often like we just saw in Noah's flood, Right? And so this is, this is the kind of picture that I think I've been using to, to, to think about this. 
If you think of humanity as actors in a play who are meant to carry out our purposes and callings in the world, and if you think of the earth as the stage in which we're meant to act out our roles and whatnot, and if you furthermore think of all of human history as a play or a story with God as the playwright and director, well, you've got to think that this play is never going to be acted out and this story is never going to be told if the stage keeps collapsing every other scene, right? You need a well-built and stable stage that's going to be preserved in order for the actors to act out their roles and for the story of the writer and director to get fully told. The stage needs to be well-built and set and stable, and just so the Noahic Covenant ensures that the stage is stable and preserved. It ensures that we get to go on fulfilling our divinely given purposes. It ensures that the story that God intends to tell in human history is indeed going to get told. It's a covenant of stability. But then that just begs the question, what are the purposes then? If this covenant provides stability for the purposes of God to be carried out in the world, we, we better know what those purposes are. And thankfully, we find out right here in Genesis exactly what those purposes are. One being, we're put here for the purpose of carrying out the cultural mandate, right? We're here. God, God created us for this purpose. We saw it back in Genesis 1, and he clearly restates this purpose here. We're here in order to fulfill and obey the cultural mandate. We're here to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and cultivate it and beautify it and form it and fill it for his glory. That's why this command is given here in Genesis 1 and repeated here in Genesis 9. And this is our calling. We're here to, in part, to start families and invent things and create art and business and government. We're here to write laws and build buildings and paint pictures and raise chickens and plant gardens and teach children and conduct scientific experiments and care for the sick and fulfill every legitimate calling that glorifies God and serves our fellow man. We're to steward and cultivate and fill the earth for God's glory, right? Uh, Nancy Piercy, in her book Total Truth, speaks of this very reality when she says that our calling is not just to go to heaven but also to cultivate the earth, not just to save souls, but also to serve God through our work. For God himself is engaged not only in the work of salvation, but also in the work of preserving and developing his creation. When we obey the cultural mandate, we participate in the work of God himself. In other words, Christian, I want you to realize that in living out your everyday callings and vocations in your home and in your family and in the world, that you are doing something important for God. You're doing something delighted in by God. You know, at Veritas, we say that one of our values is our callings and vocations. And, and texts like this in the Bible are why? We don't, we don't believe that everyone is called to be employed by the church, or that only your serving and volunteering in the church matters. We don't believe that your work outside the church only exists so that you can earn money to support the church. We don't even think that the only reason your work outside the church exists is so that you can evangelize your co-workers, even though all of those things are important. But we believe that your work itself, in your home, and in your job, 
and in the world are all blessed and bestowed by God and that he so delights in it that he would arrange all of human history in this covenant so that you could carry out that very purpose. And so I, I, want, you to remember, I want you to remember that this afternoon as you go home or tomorrow morning as you go into work. As, as you go home and prepare a meal or change a diaper or clean up a mess or do dishes, as you go into work tomorrow and you think and build and organize and plan and care for others, all of that has been ordained by the God of heaven himself. All of it is delighted in by him. All of it is sanctioned by him. He has restrained his righteous judgment in the earth so that you and all of humanity could carry on with it according to his very own purpose. But not only that, not only has God granted stability to the created order so that we might live and act out these kinds of roles in the world, He's also granted stability to tell his story, right? He's granted stability so that we might carry on with this purpose of the cultural mandate, but also so that the promises of his saving grace might come to pass. You know, one of the, one of the glaring issues with the Noahic covenant is that it doesn't really do anything to solve the problem of human sin and guilt. Again, look at verse 21, chapter 8, says the intention of man's heart is still only evil continually, just as it was back in chapter 6, before the flood. And now humanity still carries on in wickedness and depravity and evil. And God's covenant, and know it, you know, in some ways it might restrain it, but it does nothing to ultimately rescue us from it, does it? And yet God's covenant with Noah here does set the stage in which he can make another covenant in just a couple of chapters. In chapter 12, we see God make another covenant with a man named Abram. And while God's covenant with Noah does nothing to rescue humanity from sin and guilt, the promises God makes in this covenant with Abram will. Because it's in God's covenant with Abram that we see God promise to bless and save and redeem a people from all the nations and families of the earth. It's in God's promises to Abram that we see a reminder of what we saw back in Genesis 3.15 that out of all the fruitfulness and filling work of humanity, that one would eventually come that would rescue humanity from the grip of sin and Satan and who would bring us back to God. I don't think I could put it better than Richard Phillips does when he says that it is to this end that God made his covenant with Noah with respect to creation so that his great saving works in history would create a context in which he could rescue his people from their sins. The larger purpose of God's covenant with Noah would be seen in the successive covenants that unfold in the Bible. God's covenant with Abraham to justify sinners through faith. God's covenant with Moses to establish a holy nation. God's covenant with David to establish an eternal kingdom. And finally, the new covenant in Christ. It was ultimately for the purpose of the coming of Jesus Christ and the spread of his gospel that God made his great promise to Noah for the preservation of the earth. You see, friends, in other words, God has ordered all of human history by way of this covenant. He has preserved and granted stability to the created order all so that he might accomplish 
your salvation and my salvation and the salvation of a people from every nation and tribe and tongue of the earth. He has set the stage, so to speak, so that his drama of redemption might be told and his saving purposes realized and his promises come to pass. This is the purpose of the Noahic covenant. Next, last, we see the placard of the Noahic covenant. Placard is a, it's like a sign put up for public display, isn't it? Communicates a message. And just so God has given this sign, this covenant, to show something of his promises here. You see it talked about in uh, verses 8 through 17 of chapter 9 here. The sign of the Noahic covenant is the bow. What we call a rainbow, but what's here just called a bow. It says in verses 12 and 13, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. He said in verse 16, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Now, there's been some matter of debate in Christian history as to whether God created the rainbow anew after the flood or if it existed beforehand was just reappropriated to, to be this covenant sign. And I personally, I don't see any reason why the rainbow could not have existed beforehand and then be, been you know, reappropriated as the covenant sign of the Noahic covenant, just in the same way that in the new covenant, water is used in baptism, bread and wine are used in the Lord's Supper as our covenant signs in the new covenant Water, bread, wine, they all existed beforehand. They were reappropriated for the signs of the covenant here. And just so it makes sense, that the, nat- the, the rainbow is a natural occurrence, could have existed beforehand and then been used as a covenant sign after the flood. But then the symbolism of this, this covenant sign should not be lost on us. Right? The, the Hebrew word here is, is just the ordinary term for an archer's bow of course, we know is a, a weapon of battle in warfare. And what's more is that this is, this is not the only place in the Bible where God's having a bow is talked about. One such place is found in Psalm 712, where David says that if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow, right? He has a bow, apparently. He calls it my bow in Genesis 9 here. It's called his bow in Psalm 7. He has a bow. And in Psalm 7 there, he's depicted as a warrior judge who by means of his sword and bow will carry out his divine wrath on those who rebel against him and set themselves at war with him. Okay, the, the, the weapon of the bow is a picture of God's just judgment. And with that kind of imagery in mind here, the sign of the bow is the sign of the Noahic covenant seems to be communicating something important. What uh, theologians Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellham say about this bow here is that it shows us that God has laid his weapons down, right? The, the bow in the clouds is a sign to us that God has hung up his weapon of warfare and judgment. He is thereby promised to withhold his judgment from the earth for a time. For as long as the earth remains, Genesis 8, 22. But not only that, 
What also might stand out to us about this covenant sign here is the direction in which it's pointing. Right? When you see a rainbow placed in the clouds after a storm, in what direction do you see that bow facing? It's not facing down toward the earth. It's not facing horizontally across the earth. No, the, the bow is pointing up toward heaven itself. And what I think that's showing us, friends, is that not only will God refrain from judgment until the end, but that he himself will actually in some way take upon himself the judgment humanity deserves. And isn't that precisely what God intended to do in his drama of redemption in human history? Isn't that precisely why he granted preservation and stability to the created order in this covenant? So that ultimately, he might bring his purposes and promises of salvation to pass in Christ Jesus. Indeed, God's weapon of war, his bow, seems to be pointing up to heaven. And the reason it's pointing up to heaven is because the God of heaven would eventually himself come down. And he would take upon himself flesh and humanity for us. He would become the offspring of the woman and of Noah and of Abram for us, while also being truly God. And, and as such, he would live a perfect life that we ought to have lived. And because he lived a perfect life, he himself did not deserve God's judgment and wrath like we do. But even still, he would go to the cross he would go to the altar for us. He would suffer the horrors of capital punishment on a cross for us and all to die there in our place and to take upon himself the penalty for our sin, to take upon himself the wrath and judgment we deserve, to not just restrain the wrath of God toward us until the last day, but to absorb it for us completely so that we will never have to face it ourselves if we place our faith and trust in him alone. And because he was sacrificed on the altar of that cross, God is now pleased to enter into covenant relationship with us. He is pleased to forgive us and redeem us and bless us as his very own beloved children in Christ. And that's not all. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead to show his triumph over sin and Satan and death and he's now ascended on high, seated at the right hand of God. And whenever our God looks upon our Jesus, who, our Jesus, who is ever before him, he remembers the covenant that he has made with all those who place their faith and trust in Christ. And he thereby delights in forgiving you, in being patient with you, in treating you as righteous in his dear son. And so there Jesus stands ever before our God until one day when he will return and on that day he will pick up the bow of God and come down to judge the earth again. Just as he judged it in the days of Noah with water, he will again come to judge the earth in fire. But not yet. The Noahic covenant still stands. And it still stands because he is patient. He's, he's a God of justice. 
But he's also a God of patience and forbearance. And so he's waiting and he's giving humanity time to repent, time to turn to him, time to trust in him, giving his church opportunity to bear witness and be fruitful and multiply in the earth. And he's calling all who hear the gospel of Jesus Christ to turn to him and to trust in him and to come to him as their very own covenant God. This is why God has established the Noahic covenant that these purposes might come to pass.